So we are in the book of Ephesians still. We're going to move on from verse 14 and the, what we did last week with all the spiritual blessings into verse 15 this week. Uh, but I, we should open up a prayer and uh, before we dig in. Ezra's ready to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, and we just thank you for all these people that joined together this morning to worship you, Lord, to spend time in fellowship, um, sitting under your word, Lord, um, experiencing your presence in this fellowship, glorifying your holy name, um, praying for all those people who aren't with us this morning, uh, for Danny and Karen, the kids who just set up shop, and... Um, for Dan and Paris and the kids and uh, for their uh, marriage. Uh, we ask that you bless that. We ask that you bless um, our community, um, our public servants that work every day, our firefighters, police officers, and EMTs and paramedics and everybody who is standing the watch every day while we are enjoying the peaceful community that we live in. Um, and we thank you for this great nation, a place where we're able to worship you freely, Lord. And we just ask that you continue to protect those tenants uh, that many people have fought and died to protect over the years. And we just humbly ask, Lord, that you would join us this morning, that you would give us truths out of your word uh, that we might be able to take with us. Uh, not only to become more intimate with you, Lord, but also that it would sharpen us so that we may be better um, examples of you in our community. And we ask for all these blessings in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, hey, uh, Ephesians 1, we're going to move on to verse 15. We're going to keep it really kind of simple this morning. Two verses, two verses out of Ephesians 1. Um, you'll notice that, like, when we started this thing, we did a verse at a time. We did one verse, and then we did one verse because... Um, what I try really hard to do is give you as much as I can out of everything that I read. And that's my goal is if you're going to come and spend time with me, that I'm going to take the time to get as much out of it as I possibly can so that you guys can receive as much as you possibly can. It's called good exposition, right? Um, good exegesis, if you will. It's important that we learn what God has for us. So it's important to me that I give you as much as I can, but you'll see I'll break things. Sometimes it might be a verse, and other times it could be a group of verses, um, depending on how much I feel like moves me as I read it to try to get you something that is important. So uh, it's all important, but sometimes it's easier to do a verse at a time. This morning we've got two, uh, two verses, and this is the beginning of uh, a prayer. And Paul's got two prayers in, uh, in Ephesians 1. This is the first prayer. It's in chapter 1 and it's verses 15 to 23. And then the next one we'll get to in chapter 3. That's going to be verses 14 to 21. So Paul's got two prayers, two and four of the Ephesians. And this prayer is nine verses long and it's one big run-on sentence. So if you ever look at the Greek language, you'll notice that they don't use punctuation like we do. They The way the words are set up and the way the words the like you can look at a sentence and if you've even had even third grade level 
you know, spelling class, you can kind of get an idea of what the writer is talking about. For them, you got to really know Greek to be able to figure out what they all do. So we're thankful that some really good translators made it easy for us or else we'd have no idea what's going on. But this one, this one's pretty simple. Even if you were just to read the whole nine without any um, real overwhelming context or if, if, if you didn't have any punctuation, you'd be able to kind of get it, if you will. So we'll jump right in. So in verse 15, Paul says this to the Ephesians. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the Lord, that, excuse me, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. <coughs> Excuse me. So as we read this thing, when it starts out, Paul starts out with for this reason. And depending on the translation you use, I don't know if anybody's got a King James. A lot of people use the King James, which is it's a great, great translation. But where you get for this reason is translated, it's therefore. So it's either therefore or for this reason. One's a little easier to read. One's, what is therefore? in the Bible should ask what is the therefore therefore right so it's, it means something was said and then whoever is writing for this or therefore because of this so what is the therefore therefore so what Paul is doing is he's referencing the previous blessings right so we talked about blessings last week we talked about all of the blessings that we get as an inheritance because of our the nation is blessings of God's choosing of us, his people in him, or in this case, he's talking to the Ephesians of the Ephesians in him, that they are redeemed and forgiven according to God's grace, and that they're predestined to an inheritance in God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. So therefore, because of those things, and therefore, Paul has heard of their faith. And so as I was reading this thing, I was thinking, like when you try to make it applicable to people, when you exposit for the word of God, you have to be careful sometimes to think, how does this apply to me? Because guess what? Not all of the, the Bible applies. And I know some people will read the text and they're like, no, every single bit of it applies to your life somehow. Absolutely not the truth. There are things in the Bible that are historical, narrative. They talk about how God did things like how God ushers in Jesus Christ through his bloodline from Adam to him. Not all of those things mean you fit into the story somehow. One of the funniest ones, I can't remember who the guy is that, that says it, if, um, but you are not David or you are, um, you know, not the guy who's going to go throw the stone and, and kill the guy. You are not David. That story is not about you, you don't have giants to go kill. And this is a, a popular thing in churches where they'll be like, you can kill your Goliath. You just got enough faith. Like that's not what the story's about. The story is about Jesus because guess who's Jesus's bloodline comes through? David. The story is about God being faithful to his people. That's why David's in it because <laughs> he's King David and he ushers in Jesus at some point. So when we stick ourselves in there, sometimes it doesn't fit the context. So 
Uh, and in sometimes in other cases, the context fits perfectly. Like, Ooh, this really does apply to my life. This really does apply to my walk and applies to my faith and applies to my family, my kids, how I treat others, how I should worship, how I should pray, how I should live my life. Right. And so this is one of those ones I think really does apply to us very specifically as believers. If you call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ is, has anyone ever heard of your faith? Like, do people know that you're a Christian? Does your family know you're a Christian? When people talk about you, do they say, oh yeah, that guy, he's one of those um, Christians? <laughs> uh, I called the in the office a couple weeks ago, and I was like, yeah, cool. Yeah, I'm it. <laughs> so, uh, so do people know you're a Christian? So... In this case, uh, Paul has heard of their faith. And if you read the book of Colossians or the book of Philemon, you'll see these letters written by Paul. <clears throat> and just like this, they have a reputation for a loving faith. So that should be what we look at is what is our reputation? Do we have a reputation for a loving faith? Well, I want you to remember Paul uh, here is basically saying, I've, I've heard about your faith. But what does that mean? Where's Paul as he's writing this? He's in prison. It's a prison epistle. So um, if Paul's in prison, and this is a letter to the people in Ephesus, then somebody is going to Paul and saying, hey, did you hear about Ephesus? Have you heard what's going on there? Have you heard that these people are living out the tenets of the Christian life, loving one another, uh, serving one another, sharing their money, sharing their goods, sharing their food, that they're sharing the word of God with people, that they know who Christ is, that people know him. And the word that he is getting back is positive that he, in his missionary journey, brought the spirit of Christ with him, that he planted it with the people, and that they're growing in faith. So this is really important, right? So this is, he heard this and he's in prison. So when he writes this letter, he's writing it as a person who's like, wow, these people are making an impact in the community. These are the reports that he's, So in this, when we read it, it says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Saints means believers. So we talked about this when we talked about Galatians. So when we talk about saints, it's not somebody that the church says is a believer or the church said is somebody who does something good. A saint is a believer, but faith is listed first. I think the Bible is really interesting in the way it's interesting in the way that it's set up sometimes because Oftentimes things are written very orderly, bless you, orderly in a way that Paul will write things out in an order that seems to make sense. Faith being before love, right? It's more evidence that there is no true love without faith in it. Like a lot of people just say, you know, I can love without having faith in Jesus. But what is that love? What is the basis? What's the foundation for that love? Oftentimes it's selfish. I think about a marriage without Christ. You know, I serve my wife because Christ loved me first. That helps my marriage become a better marriage in him. And I'm not saying that people who aren't Christians can't love their spouse. The but part is, typically, why do those relationships have issues? Why do they work? And those issues usually result from some sort of selfish desire. 
You know, I love this person because they please me physically, because they're beautiful, because they cook, because they clean, because they have my kids, because they make a lot of money, because they've got a great job. I love them for all these reasons. They fulfill these things in me. Think about that for a second. That's a pretty selfish way to look at things. What's truly sacrificial is I love them. And of course, we meet people out of the laws of and that's fair. God built that into us. We were attracted to people because of the way they look, the way they smell, the way they cook, whatever that thing might be that you're attracted to. To me, because God, God built them for me to love. It's like a reciprocal thing when you both do this for one another. Um, this evidence of faith in Christ creates a love that we don't define, that he defines. Love is not love. That's a big thing today, right? People like to say love is love. Love is not love. You don't define love. Um, communities that dislike and, and do not love God, they don't define love. Love is not love. Christ is love. He defines love. It's not a feeling. It's a response. It's a response to faith. For a second, if you look at Matthew 22, don't turn there unless you really want to, but Matthew 22 and verses 36 to 40, um, Christ is asked this question, teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? So what commandment is the one that, it, like that's the first one I have to follow, the one that's going to bring me closer to you. Jesus' response to him is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Faith in God is first. This is what he's saying, right? If you're going to love somebody first, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And then out of that comes what? Love for your neighbor. So if I love my neighbor first, selfish reasons, which if you look at the world today, it doesn't work very well. We are not a benevolent people just by nature. We are selfish by nature. If you look across the board at benevolent communities, and people love to pick on the church. If you look at organizations that adopt kids and feed hungry people across the world, the overwhelming majority of them come out of the church. Things like Samaritan's Purse, um, and all these, I mean, there are uh, hundreds of charities out there. Food kitchens, go into inner cities. You have these soup kitchens that otherwise don't look religious. Walk inside and ask who's managing it and who, what organization they belong to. Tons and tons of them, overwhelmingly, not by a little bit, by thousands of percent are run by religious organizations, hands down. So when people come to you and be like, well, what is the church doing in the community? You can be like, well, Let's talk about that for a minute because the church is working its butt off to do things to make the community better and the secular world is way, way behind, way behind. And it's just a simple truth. Um, if you look at 1 John, here's just another example of the same thing. We're called not to love the world. And this is a tough thing for people to get their heads around when they're Christians, especially new believers because this idea like, I'm just supposed to love everybody. We're called to love Christ. 
and then each other as believers. This is the way the community looks. We're called to evangelize the world. The world is sinful. We don't go out and just love the world like we love each other. You don't pull sinfulness into your inner circle. That's not the way evangelism works, right? This is what 1 John 2.15 says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is a hard one to get your head around now, but aren't I supposed to love my enemy? I'm not supposed to love my neighbor. Okay, contrast this with Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is part of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. All the great sayings of Jesus on how we live our life, how as a disciple we exercise our faith, right? Christ tells us to love our enemy. Love your enemy uh, in that case is about being generous, loving, caring, and bringing the gospel and not being contentious for the sake of being evil. We have to reach the world for the gospel. So what does it mean to love your enemy? It means I don't keep the gospel from them. But it doesn't mean that I go to the things that they do and support what they do and say in the world, and we could fill in the blank with all the junk that's out there right now, right? And say, it's all right. I love them. I am going to be a part of their community. No, absolutely not. You know how you love people when they're sinful? You share the gospel with them. And this is a tough one for believers to get. And I, I like that, that picture of our kids. If your kid was standing next to you while you were cooking and there was a hot flame on the stove and they were about to touch it, what would you do? You would tell them to stop. You would tell them that's going to hurt you. But we have our neighbors who are going to hell for eternity and we are unwilling to tell them that there's an alternative. That's loving your neighbor. It's not loving your neighbor to be like, my neighbor lives an extremely sinful lifestyle. And I'm like, love is love. As long as you all love each other, it's okay. That's not what God says. This entire book is full of me, 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 me. From, from Jesus' perspective, it's about me. It's about Jesus. It's about him. It's about the way I want you to be, not the way you want you to be. It's the way I define love, not the way you define love. It's about me glorifying the Father through my death on the cross. You do what I want you to do, and you get to be with me in heaven. Not you get to do what you want to do and deny what I said, and then you get to go to heaven. That's universalism. That doesn't work. That is not the way the gospel is set up. It's very important. There's that old saying in the hippie church, love the sinner, hate the sin. Love the sinner, hate the sin. No. We hate the world. The world is not of Jesus. We do not love it. We love each other. Remember, when people see the way that we love each other, they will want to it for one of two reasons. Because they're like, wow, look at the way those people love one another. I want to be a part of that. Or they'll be like, types of people and so hopefully it's the former so in this as we move on it says uh, i do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in all my prayers so paul does not cease to give thanks some other bible references 1 thessalonians 5 and 16 to 18 it says rejoice always pray without ceasing give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of god in christ jesus for you so it's the will of Christ that we don't cease to pray and give thanks. 
And I, I wonder in, in my life, I'm not like this. <laughs> I don't not cease to give thanks, right? So are you prayerful in everything? Do you have a steady prayer life? Does it mean getting up in the morning, reading the word of God, spending time in devotion and praying? Does it mean you pray over your wife, pray over your kids, pray over your husband, pray over your home, pray over your job? Do you spend time in deliberate prayer or do you just do it when you're in the car and there's a bill that hasn't been paid and you're like, darn, please God, make sure enough money at the end of the month for the bill to be paid. Is it because you're on your way home and you're on empty and you're like, please God, let me make it back to the gas station in Southern Pines before I run out of gas. Is it when your house has just made you so ripped that you just, the world's going to come apart and you're tired of their crap and you are like in the darkness and the silence of your home laying in bed and you're like, please God, fix my spouse. They are wrong about everything. I am right. They should know they're wrong. Please give them the wisdom to understand how horrible they are. And then they will apologize to me and our marriage will be better. Like, what do you pray? Uh, <laughs> you pray that out loud? You're supposed to do it silent. <laughs> but uh, the, the understanding here is that we pray without ceasing for others, for our family, for ourselves, for our God. We pray that everything we do is lifted up to him. I just got a glimpse inside your home that's funny. It's great. I love it. And what does your prayer life look like, right? Uh, some people don't like that great old, I, that is awesome. Um, don't like that old idea of saying grace, right? Saying a thankful words before your meal. I think you should do it at every meal. You should do it in public. You should do it with people. Every once in a while, you want to stir things up. When you're sitting at the table, you're about to eat dinner in public, and a, a wait person comes up to you. And they're like, can I get you anything for you? They're like, yep, we're about to pray. Stand right here. Put out your hand. That one really gets them weird, especially these days because nobody likes to touch. Pray. Pray in front of, don't be afraid to pray in front of people. Pray for your food. God gave it to you. You didn't give it to you. You were talking about this earlier. Like, look at how amazing this country is and the waste that we have. God gave us all this stuff. And we wonder why things are, you know, going to hell in a handbasket. He's given us all this stuff. And we will sit down and stuff our faces without even taking like the one second to like, be like, all right, silence. Thank you, God. Because most of you guys have been to those places. People don't have what we have anywhere else in the world. Take it so for granted. Take that second. I think it's a great thing to stop before your meal um, and thank God. In verse 17, as we move on and we start creeping up, Towards the end here, um, so he does not cease to give thanks to the Lord. Remember you in all my prayers. It says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. So we're going to move on one more verse because I think we're doing pretty good on time. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of glory. Reference another verse from John 20, 17, when Jesus is appearing to Mary Magdalene, he said to her this, because she clung to him. She's like, oh my gosh, Christ was killed. He went to the grave and now I see him. So she clings to him and he says to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the father and your father to my God and your God. Okay, so we learn something about the nature of Jesus here in verse 17. 
when Paul says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. So Jesus is God. Jesus is in order. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is subordinate to the Father. Although the Trinity and all equal, there's still headship to it in the Trinity. So God the Father, it's his glory, it's his plan, it's him who established the foundation. And this is what we're learning here, that he is the Father of glory. He's the Lord of our Lord. And this is what Jesus is telling Mary here is, I haven't ascended to my Father and your Father, to his God and her God. Although I am your God, he is your God. He is the Father. And Paul says this in Romans 4. Six, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may live in one voice, glorify the God, our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's this headship. It's about headship. It's the way God is set up in the Trinity. It's also the way we are set up here on earth, right? Uh, God the Son exists as God, but in obedience to the Father as the second person of the Trinity, which we talked about, along with the Holy Spirit. And all of this is for the glory of the Father because He's worthy, because He's holy. You see, this headship idea comes out in everything in life. Somebody is kind of sitting there making sure that all the organizations work well. If, you know, if the inmates were running the prison, <laughs> it wouldn't go well. There would never be any agreements on anything. There has to be some sort of organization. And we see it in government. We see it in the military. And the best example is the home. So in the home, and we're going to get to Ephesians later on and talk about headship in the home, right? A mother and a father are equal in the home. A woman submits to her husband in the home. A husband submits to her, his wife the way Christ laid his life down for the church. So they are submitting to one another, right? Very reciprocal in nature. And then here's the butt pump. But the man is the head of the woman. Now the world hates this because the women's liberation movement, which was one of the worst things to happen to humankind in contemporary world, will teach you that that is unequal. But what Christ doesn't say is that it's unequal. He doesn't say a man and a woman aren't equal. He's putting the man in the position where it's his responsibility to serve the home from the top down. Not that he's in charge of the wife in some sort of way that it's like the general in the troops, but he's responsible to make sure that the prayers, the glory, the loving kindness that comes from heaven, he is to embrace his family. in. That's his responsibility. And in that, because he's the head, he also serves them. This is a really important thing to understand. The world does not understand it because, well, they hate God and they're willing, they refuse to look at it in a way that's biblical. But the man is responsible for all the work in his home, right? He lays his life down for his wife as the head. So it's kind of a weird thing to look at. And the church is built the same way. This is why we don't believe that women are in the position of pastor or elder in the church. Men are. The thing with this is, and there, I mean, there are women pastors here in this community. Church down the street has a gay woman pastor standing at the pulpit. I mean, probably someone should bring them a Bible. I don't know if they have one there, but there's tons of stuff in the Bible that just proves it's wrong. 
It's a low view of God. It's a low view of the Bible. It's a low view of the Holy Spirit. It's a low view of the people who wrote the book. It's a low view of the church fathers who determined it. Um, we believe that Paul, what Paul said comes from the Holy Spirit. He gave that position in the church to a man. It doesn't make the women not equal. It means that that shepherd is responsible for the faith walk of the people there. The other part of that is, is he takes that responsibility away from the women to essentially be damned if it gets screwed up. That's his job. He gets damned if he screws it up. So think about that. I mean, you, he pulled that responsibility. Do you know why it happened that way, though? Do you know why um, the women's liberation movement chases that? If you turn back to Genesis 3, when the fall happened, God said that woman would be after the man that she would desire the man. And if you look at that and kind of pull the old Hebrew text apart, what it really means is, is that he made the man the head, but that the woman is going to try to pull that headship away because she doesn't understand, because she feels like she's being lorded over. Instead of them submitting to one another, it's this constant contentiousness. It's, it's part of our sinfulness because we just don't get it. Because in perfection, we just love and serve one another and we won't be fighting for who's better, mom or dad. Who's better, the woman at the church who runs a bunch of ministries or the pastor? They're both equal as humans. They both have the same impact for the world from the Lord. But they're going to contend over it because I don't want somebody to be in charge of me, especially a man, Right? So forget all that junk. Set it aside. I believe it. That's what we do. He did it for a reason. It's only our sinfulness that pulls us apart. Don't let it happen. So another point to this in headship from um, as we go along is because of God's holiness. We do all of this. We set things up with this headship. We do it for the glory of God. He's worthy. He's holy. As we finish up 17 when he talks about the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory, to your wisdom and the revelation and knowledge of him. So he goes through this, he says, um, I think it begs that question, what does Paul pray for these people who are seemingly doing theology, worship, and love right? So apparently they're doing all kinds of things right. That's what he's been talking about this whole time. So his prayer for them is, I want you to have these things wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him so wisdom sophia greek it's about insight it's about skill it's about comprehension i want you to have these things what's up man he wants them to have this wisdom this insight but he also wants them to have revelation hi ezra he wants them to have uh, this word, it's the word that comes, that we get apocalypse from, and it's apocalypsis. It's about unveiling or uncovering. It's about revealing. And what does he want revealed? What does he want us to have the wisdom of? The knowledge of God the Father. That's what he wants to give to us. His prayer for his people is, I want all this stuff revealed for you so that you know who the Father is. And what does that mean? Knowledge of God? This epignosis, this knowledge, it's knowledge of a particular point. 
It's about recognition, intuition, and perception to really know who the Father is in a very deep, very intimate way that God the Father is revealed in our lives so that he knows, we know what he has for us. <laughs> He's doing awesome. <laughs> and this should be our prayer for one another. This should be our prayer for the church. It should be our prayer for the country. It should be our prayer for our neighbors. It should be our prayer in here for one another. That that's what God does for us. That he gives us the wisdom and knowledge, the revelation that we know God better. Because when we know God better, we know how to love each other better. When we know God better, we know how to love our spouse better. We know how to love our kids better. We know how to reach our neighbors. We know how to reach the world and their sinfulness in a better way. We don't judge them in the way that we're just out there telling them, what you're doing is wrong. Instead, what we tell them is, there's a great God out there. And that's it. Not, there's a great God that's going to fix all your sinfulness. No, there's a great God out there. Guess what God does when they accept him? He fixes all their sinfulness. I don't, that's it. I don't need to go tell them how sinful they are. They're sinful. I was sinful. I didn't need somebody to tell me how awful I was. I knew it already. Like, I had a pretty good idea what a horrible person I was before I got saved. I've still got a pretty good idea how horrible a person I am and I am saved. So there you go, right? So people know they're not walking with God. They're either denying him openly or they're living sinfully. When the Holy Spirit enters their heart and he saves them and he baptizes them by fire, they start realizing their sinfulness and they change through a process of sanctification and through their own work where they decide, I want to do things that are better for me, for the glory of God. So this is my prayer for you guys, that all of you would grow in wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of God, the father, the supplier of grace and hope, the one who created the universe and created a way to himself in love. This is the thing. He is our prize. He is our treasure. He, God, the father, he is our prize. We talked about him being our treasure last week. And when we realize this and people hear of your faith, you won't be able to contain it. You will not be able to contain that saving faith when it really starts to touch your heart. Um, and that's why I asked the question, has anybody heard of your faith? You know, when you're out living your life and working and doing yard work and doing vacation and whatever it is that you do in your daily life, do the people around you know that you're faithful? Either through the things you say or through your actions, do people know you're faithful? This is what Paul got from them. The report that Paul got was that they were faithful. All right.
Awesome. Well, thanks for coming this morning. As every day, we love having you guys. So let's uh, pray before we um, finish our fellowship today. Um, if you'll bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you for who you are. And we just, we, we love this time together, Lord, and we ask that you continue to bless it um, for however long you'll, you'll have us here in our home. Um, we thank you for your son, Jesus. Our prayer, Lord, is that today you would put something in our heart that makes us understand that the people around us need to hear the gospel, Lord. That the report people would get is that we are faithful and loving. That we would serve one another well, that we would serve our families well, and that you would continue to bless us richly. We thank you for all that we have that we clearly do not deserve. And we thank you for your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins. And we ask for all of our blessings in his holy name. Amen.